of God and you are going to encounter spiritual wickedness in high places, you will end up encountering such devices, fiery darts from directions that you are not even aware of. Prayer provides for us a divine covering. Now watch this. And not only the covering, but the sensitivity that something is taking place that I might not be aware of, but I then get the sense of security that God has got my back. Even when I'm not able to see what evilness is attempting to do, God is working all things together for the good. It is Satan's desire to keep us too busy that we might not pray. And again, it's in Acts chapter 2 where Luke says that the church experienced this tremendous growth because the church not only ate together, they not only had fellowship together, but they prayed together. They understood that if they locked arms together in prayer, that there was something collective that was going to happen when they came before the presence of God. What we need to get a grip on is that if we learn to pray collectively, we can move what seems to be impossible. Amen. So remember the little story that Jesus tells, if you say to this mountain, be thou removed, it has to move in my name. Now, it's not a physical mountain. You and I can go out and stand before a mountain and tell the mountain move. Notice it don't go nowhere. But it's very clear metaphorical language to suggest that whenever you're standing before something that's insurmountable in natural strength, if you join together with someone and say, hey, pray with me, we call it prayer partners, but if we agree, then the Bible say, if two or more touching and agreeing on one thing, look what can happen. We can say to that mountain, it needs to be removed, and now, now we'll come to see how God moves mountains in mighty ways away from our lives when we're able to understand how prayer is extremely important. You read the Bible, it tells us if we're reading Romans 12, 12, or if we're reading Galatians 4 and 2, or if we're reading 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, or we're reading Luke 18, 1, once again, Romans 12, 12, once again, Galatians 4, 2, once again, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, once again, Luke 18, 1, we hear out of all those verses, just a few, this constant call to be devoted to prayer because God honors persevering prayer. You stick with it, God will eventually open up the door. So Elijah is described by James as someone who is fervently, constantly, persistently in prayer, which says to us that we can do no less if there's an expectation among us that God is going to do some great things in our lives. So we come to the text, and the text tells us that Elijah is a man who kind of learned a principle far be before we even really ever heard it, as it's described to us in a very interesting hymn that once again we don't sing too often in church. You remember this hymn? Let us have a little talk with Jesus. Tell him all about our troubles. 
Hear our faintest cry, answer by and by. Here's the joy. Feel a little fire or prayer wheel turning. Know a little fire is burning. Just a little talk with Jesus makes it all right. Do we really believe that? Because if we really believe that, then prayer would not be a situation. Have I lost my microphone? It's on my side. Where is it at? It's on my neck. Lord have mercy. That's why I don't care much for technology. Help me out here. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ken. I'm going to be like them prosperity preachers. You're going to be blessed for that just for you help the pastor. I don't know what it's going to be, but you're going to be blessed for it. So just a little talk with Jesus will make things right. There ought to be some witnesses in the house that you've had a talk with him about some things. Or could we argue about everything? And it made things right in your life. So we saw in the life of Elijah how the use of prayer, when he was confronted by death in 1 Kings 17, of the widow's son who took sick and then eventually died, and Elijah had to stretch himself out three times on this child's body up in his upper room and ask God to change the condition of this woman and the life of her son. What happens? The rubber begins to meet the road. What Elijah experienced in terms of that pressure that he was introduced to three years ago by telling Ahab, it's not going to rain according to my word, he now has to really believe as the rubber meets the road that what he said is going to come to pass. What's he do now? He is now summons in chapter 18, verse 1 and 2. Now he's got to go back to Ahab and tell Ahab, I need to see you because I'm going to pronounce to you now, three years later, that it's going to rain. But God actually doesn't tell Elijah to tell Ahab it's going to rain. He simply tells Elijah, you go and meet Ahab, look at verse 1, and I will send the rain. What I want to know, says God, is are you going to believe my word? Are you going to trust me when you cannot trace me? If I haven't told you to do that, are you going to really go ahead and do what exactly you need to do, which is go now and confront and to meet Ahab? He's transitioning, watch this, from his prayer closet. And what was his prayer closet? It was three years three years, he was in two places. He was by the brook Cherith, and then he was in the presence of the widow in her house. He was away from the public forum. So for three years now, God has Elijah locked away in a prayer closet, getting him prepared now to meet Ahab, the public figure of Ahab, in a space where he now must look at the pathetic character of this king. Three years, it's not going to rain. Now, it's going to rain according to my word. 
Now, three questions, and then I'm done. Three questions arises out of this episode between these three characters in this portion of the story. Ahab, Obadiah, and Elijah. Ahab must wrestle with the question, whatever, whatever Elijah said, is it true that Elijah has that kind of power that if he tells it not to rain, it won't rain? Because what's now going to take place is Ahab has to realize he says that Baal is the God of the sky. And Elijah says, no, I know the God of the sky. And what he doesn't know is he's setting up a contest between Elijah's God and Ahab's God. Now, somebody ain't going to be the God. Someone's going to be lying. Because Ahab says, my God. Candles are red. Give me a favor. Cut this microphone on right here. Thank you. Because Ahab says, my God is the God who causes. That's okay. Just take it out. There you go. Thank you. So, did you get it? No, get the other piece. It's under there somewhere. <laughs> oh, pull that out. Pull that out. Just pull it. Okay. There you go. Stuck up under there? Yeah. Let me take my clothes off. Now pull it. There you go. All right. What do we do with that? Okay. So Ahab says, um, so now my God is the God who controls the rain. And Elijah says, no, my God is the God who controls the rain. And now we got to see a contest is going to ensure. But in the meantime, Ahab is trying to wonder, is Elijah's word as powerful as he says it is? Because the evidence proves that it is. Because for three years, it has not rained. Here's the parallel for us. Where you are, no matter where you are, let's use, for example, the context of your work or your school or your neighborhood, and God uses you to speak words of life before people, you have to believe that if God's going to use me to do that, when I speak that word out, because if I believe God's word, it goes out and never returns void, there's a suggestion there that I've got to be strong and believe that even if I don't see the revelation come to pass at the moment, I've got to trust that God's going to bring it to pass in God's own timing. Because the enemy is looking at me and wondering what's actually going to happen with this word, but the evidence is bringing about conviction that what I've said must be coming to pass because listen, if I'm accustomed to it raining at least once a year and three years pass, it hasn't rained and it's because some guy told me it ain't gonna rain until I say it's gonna rain, I am a bit convinced that there's either something in his word 
Or maybe I should suggest that I need to find out who God really is because remember, Baal was the cultic God who's supposed to be in charge of the rain, in charge of fertility, in charge of bringing about produce, and my God hadn't let it rain for three years, and check this out, he didn't even tell me that he wasn't going to let it rain. But Elijah said, my God told me that it wasn't going to rain for three years, and guess what? It did not rain. And where God has you at is to use you as a prophetic voice to change that darkness into light. And here's how you know it takes place. There may be haters in the context because of who you are, and they may not want to say much to you because you are a believer in God. But when trouble arrives in their context and they just don't know where to turn, it's amazing how they remember the very person that they don't want to talk to who happens to be a believer in God. Let me see if I can have a conversation with them to at least ask them, can you remember to pray for my mom or my dad or my brother or my sister or my wife or my husband? Why? Because even those who don't believe when trouble occurs or when a drought occurs, it can move you to do what you never thought you would do. That's why I tell people, don't ever say Say what you won't do and don't be critical of people who make choices to do things that may not be as moral as you are why because you are not in their context you don't know what you would do until you actually place in that context and we've all done it we've seen people do things that I'd never do it in my life I don't care what happened I die before uh, you no you wouldn't and here's what you do. You do it, but you work hard making sure don't nobody know that I'm doing it or I'll do it in a space where don't nobody know me. That way if they see me, they don't know me and hopefully it'll be over quickly and I'll never have to see them again. That's called history. And here it is. We're in that context now where Ahab will have to wonder is Elijah's words as true as he say they are. God tells Elijah, go show yourself to Ahab. And verse 2 says, Elijah makes his journey to see Ahab because there is a severe famine in Samaria. Now on the way, Ahab knows something's wrong because verse 3 says that Ahab calls the leader of his house, the servant of his house, the overseer of his house, and his name is Obadiah. Now, Obadiah, as I told him this morning, is in uh, sort of like comparison to Nehemiah. He has a good government job. You know, Nehemiah is the cupbearer, and Nehemiah's job was to make sure that whatever came to the king's presence in terms of his meal, Nehemiah has to first taste it to make sure that there's nothing poisonous in it because the king knows that everybody's out to get him at some point in time. And Nehemiah is the one who's supposed to test it. Now that doesn't sound like a good job on the surface because that means that there is anything in the food, guess who's gonna die first? It won't be the king, it'll be you. Obadiah's job is a little bit better. Obadiah is the overseer of Ahab's entire household. So he's responsible for the maintenance of the house, 
to make sure that everybody does what their job is in the house, to make sure security is there at the house. In other words, Obadiah has a big job, but Obadiah has a complex situation. Obadiah is a believer working for a wicked king. Now think about this in your job. Watch the parallel. Obadiah, we'll use modern terms, is a Christian trying to live out his Christian life working for a non-Christian. So Obadiah knows some secrets about Ahab that nobody else knows. Obadiah knows some stuff that if he wanted to, he could call the National Enquiry. It could be a scandal all over Israel. He has so much insight into what Ahab does. Oh, and Jezebel, who's the real king of the kingdom, but we won't talk about that right now. As I told you earlier at the beginning of the series, Ahab is really henpecked. He does whatever Jezebel tells. She actually is the pants wearer in the house. And Ahab really does wear the skirt, but that's a whole nother different story. But Obadiah's got insight, but he's got a good job, but he has to live out his Christian life in secret. He can't let him know that he's a follower of Yahweh, because if he does, it would cost him his life. How do I know that? Read continuously in the remaining of the text, and it says that Jezebel had earlier sent out an edict to kill all the prophets who were not of Baal. So that meant that every Hebrew prophet they could find, she put them to death. And look at what the text says in verse 4. It came about when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah, in his Christian character, in his God-fearing perspective, took a hundred of those prophets and hid them into two different caves by fifties. And he made sure they were fed every single day. Now, you might ask, how in the world does that have anything to do with me? Watch what God does. Now, Obadiah also knows that because he has access to the king's table, you know he's eating well. You know he's eating at the top of the line. But he also knows that they throw away a lot. And what does Obadiah do? I want to suggest that what he does is he gets what considers to be the scraps and gets them together and makes sure that every evening the prophets who are hidden in the caves get plenty of bread and plenty of water. Talking about God providing. Watch this. I didn't tell you how God was going to provide. I just said God will supply all your needs. Now, he didn't always tell us how he's going to make it work, but he does make it work. Now, those prophets hiding in the cave could very well argue, why do I want to be here? I'm hidden in the cave. Don't nobody know I'm here. I could die in here. You're not going to die because God has made sure through Obadiah that every single day you're going to get all that you need, making sure that you have all the bread and the water that you need. And God is teaching Obadiah to deal with a very interesting question because Obadiah, in doing what he does, as Elijah makes his way, is eventually met by Elijah. And he says to Elijah, is that really you? Because he has never met Elijah before, but he has heard about Elijah. And he says, is that really you? And he says, if that's really you, I can't believe it. And Elijah said, forget all that. I need for you to go and tell Ahab to come and meet me. Now watch this. Obadiah says, hold up, bro, hold, hold up now. See, you, you pushing the limit. 
Look at the text. Watch this. You're pushing the limit. Look what he says. He says, verse 5, go and tell, oh, Ahab said, well, skip that. Go to verse 6. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, verse 7. Obadiah was on his way. Elijah met him, recognized him, verse 8, and he said to him, go tell Ahab, Elijah is here. Now watch Obadiah's response, verse 9. Have I sinned? Have I done something wrong to you that you're giving your servant into the hands of Ahab to be put to death? Do you not know that Ahab has been looking for you? And because he's been looking for you, he's been around different kingdoms and made those kingdoms swear that if Elijah is not here, you better be telling me the truth. And if Elijah ever comes here, you better tell me. If not, I will come back and kill you right on the spot. And Obadiah says, man, you don't know. If I tell Ahab that you're here to meet him and you don't show up, who you think Ahab going to come looking for? It's not going to be you. It's going to be me. In fact, he reminds Elijah, don't you know how spiritual I am? Don't you know what I've done for the prophets? Don't you know that I feared and revered God? But what Obadiah didn't know was that God was stretching him is the reason why he's in the space that he's in. And here's the question that Obadiah is going to have to wrestle with. Why would I try to fit in when I was born to stand out? Why would I try to fit in and be conformed to the life of Ahab when God has made me to stand out and shine before Ahab? So in other words, I need for you to take a risk, said Elijah, and sometimes God places you in spaces where you asked for a promotion, but you didn't realize with the promotion came risk. And sometimes we took those promotions, and when we got in and recognized who we were working with, we said to ourselves, man, I wish I had stayed where I was, because at least where I was, I knew the people, I knew the environment, I knew the situation, but there was a complacency that had developed itself within us that we were no longer challenging to ourselves. And I have a sneaky suspicion that what God did to Obadiah was promoting him to a space for such a time as this, knowing that he would need for Obadiah to meet Elijah, to let Ahab know, I'm here to meet you right now. Same thing happened to Esther. For Esther was elevated to become queen, and uh, Mordecai had to remind her, listen, just because you queen and you live in large and luxurious, don't you think that that means that God has abandoned you for your assignment? You still have the responsibility to speak up for your people, and he had to remind her, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, God will move you out and put someone else in that spot. Your best bet is to follow through on the assignment. And Elijah is trying to tell Obadiah in a very indirect sense, just do what your assignment is, which is to go and tell Ahab, Elijah is here to meet you. Come and meet me. And Elijah is saying to Obadiah, listen, don't try to fit in to be pleasing to Ahab. I know you got a good government job, you got benefits, you got retirement, you got everything you ever wanted, but listen to me, 
you will be replaced the moment that you die and you can be fired at any time for any reason. Whenever there is a government cutback, trust me, they'll find a way to cut you out. And what Elijah is telling Obadiah is, remember who gave you that promotion in the first place from whom all blessings flow. Don't forget that when you get there, keep on praising God, keep on blessing God, keep on remember that you are larger than what that space is. Sometimes we get promotions and we forgot who gave us the promotion. We get so excited, man, that we get a little bit more money. We stop coming to church. We don't go to Bible study. We don't go to prayer meeting, let alone talk about going to a revival or anything. And before you know it, a year has passed, two years has passed, until we go to the doctor. The doctor says, you know, I think I saw a spot on your breast. I need you to come back for a further examination. Or your PSA numbers are too high. We need to do a little further investigation. Then we want to run back to the church. Lord, help me, please, because I need your help. And and maybe if we had remembered from whom all blessings flow, that when we got to that moment, we wouldn't be so frantic. But you can't forget how God has blessed you. Some of us have never even seen, have seen what I call a single day of trouble. We've been that blessed. Where we don't have sickness. We're living in good health and strength. We've been blessed enough where things have worked well for us. Some of us can eat everything, drink everything, do everything, and don't have no repercussions at all. And I would say, don't take that for granted. You might want to re-examine why you're doing that. And then the other of us, if you eat one thing wrong, blood pressure goes through the roof, your sugar number go way over there to the North Pole somewhere, your heart gets to fluttering and doing something different. It's a reminder unto us, not only from whom all blessings flow, but from whom life flows. And how you ought to be grateful. And Obadiah has to learn, I wasn't born to fit in. You weren't born to be on that job and just to fit in, to make everybody happy and to be pleasing to everybody. And then you, you know, when you try to do that, you come home at night, you feel miserable. They cussing, you cussing. They lying, you lying. We do everything to fit into the crowd. And God is saying, I didn't make you to fit in. I made you to stand out. Because you raise the level of expectation and professionalism. So we ought to be proud when we come around in our workplace and people get quiet. They stop talking, stop gossiping, stop cussing because you're religious and they don't want to offend you. That's right. That's great. Because that's who I represent. And have you noticed there's always less of you than it is of them? Because God has placed you there as a light in that dark space. But he also wants you to recognize, I want you to stand out so that when that person's life falls to pieces, they know exactly who to come to and to ask, is there an answer to their complex problem? So Elijah moves upon the life and the heart of Obadiah. And guess what Obadiah does? He weighs in the balances. I'm bigger than this. He goes and tells Ahab. And the word of the Lord says in verse 16, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, Ahab in return went to meet Elijah. 
Now you can only imagine what happens when they came together. Ahab sees Elijah and Elijah sees Ahab. When Ahab sees Elijah, look what he says to him. Is it really you, the troubler of Israel? Elijah says, no, I ain't the troubler. You're the reason why they in trouble. You're the reason why, because according to Deuteronomy, as a king, you were supposed to maintain commitment for the entire nation unto God. And what have you done? You've led them away to become worshipers of Baal. Not me, but you. And Elijah says when he sees Ahab, man, I can't believe I got to see you again. I thought I got rid of you when I said it wasn't going to rain. And now God made me come back and see you again. Here's my closing point. Because Elijah has to wrestle with, do I have it like that with God that when I speak it, it actually comes to pass? Do I really have that kind of power? You should be wrestling with that same question. Because you got that kind of power. One of the objectives of Satan is to keep the believer from recognizing who the believer is in Jesus Christ. If I can keep you from recognizing the power source of your existence, then you will always run on artificial fuel. You'll run on what you want to run on rather than to remember, wait a minute, if I'm connected to the all-powerful God and if greater is he that is in me, that says a lot to me right now. If he is in me and if God through Jesus controls and is empowered to bring about victory, then that means since I'm an heir of God, Romans 8, and a joint heir with Jesus Christ, that means I got some power that I don't even know. And if that's true, then Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 comes to pass quickly because I begin to recognize God has got power to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that I could ever ask or think. And if God's got that kind of power, then God is telling me one of your problems is Satan wants you not to use your imagination. Because if you can use your imagination, you can start thinking big and you can start seeing big. And when you see an Ahab, an Ahab is like David when he saw Goliath. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should be intimidating trying to root out the army of the Lord? In fact, David looked at Goliath and said, man, he ain't nothing to me. In fact, the God that I serve helped me beat the bear and helped me beat another. And if God can do that, he can help you. Everybody else, all of David's brothers looked at Goliath and said, there's nothing we can do with it. In fact, even the king of Israel, Saul, refused to step out because his imagination was that big. And David, a young shepherd boy, looked at Goliath and used the one weaponry that he has, watch this, that only a little boy could use a slingshot and five smooth stones. Saul tried to get David to use his weaponry and Saul tried to put his garment onto David and David said, man, I can't wear that. First of all, I've never worn anything, but secondly, it's too big. Thirdly, I don't even know how this works. 
but I know how my slingshot works. I know how I can go. And he goes down into the valley, and he goes down to confront Goliath, and Goliath says, y'all, this what y'all sent down to fight me? This ain't nothing but a boy. Okay, this is what y'all got. Then just give me a few minutes. The birds will finally get their meal for the day. And it's going to be all over with. And David says, I tell you, bro, you shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have said that. And David loads up. And David releases one stone. One stone. And it brings Goliath to the ground. Another story hard to believe. How does a possibly six-foot young man handle a nine-foot giant? How, how, how do you do that? And you defeat him with a stone. Well, when divine orchestration is at work, see, I'm a believer that David probably wasn't that good of an aim, so God directed the stone right to the center of the cranium and if it hits in the right spot right here in the front of your forehead you will instantly drop to the ground because it paralyzes brain function and what happens when the giant falls David takes the giant sword and disconnects his head from his shoulder why because when God is orchestrating God knows how to bring about victory which is why Elijah has to remember, I sent you back. Because the victory will only come to pass when you put your rubber to the road. You can't talk prayer. You can't talk prayer. You can't talk prayer. You got to put some action behind your prayer. You got to get in a fight. You got to be there. You got to believe if God says he's going to do it, you got to believe. You got to work it out. And you got to stand there in, in the language of Moses, stand still and see the salvation of God. And when Elijah meets Ahab, he says, you know what? Verse 19, 20, and 21, you know what? I, get rid of the small talk. You say that your God of Baal is the God of the sky. I'm telling you, my God is the God of the sky. The only way we're going to settle this is that we're going to have to have a contest. And Elijah says, go get your prophets of Baal. Go get your prophets of Ashtoreth. Go get everybody. Get all the help you want. Meet me up at Mount Carmel. Read the story and Elijah doesn't call anybody. Absolutely nobody at all. Because Elijah now is recognizing the words that I speak they are spirit and they are life. Elijah walks up to Mount Carmel with such boldness and power. And then I'm done. He says to him, tell you what, man, I've just got so much confidence in my God. You go first. Go on, hook yourself up, man. Have you, knock yourself out. Read the rest of 1 Kings 18. And the Bible says that they took and began to make altars and they start crying out to their God. All day long, just crying out. And God says nothing. Their God has no reaction at all. 
So much so they begin to cut themselves, says the Bible, because they are not hearing any kind of response from the God to whom they are praying. And Elijah looks at him and says, hey, maybe your God on vacation. Maybe he took a break. Maybe he's no longer there. Or maybe he doesn't answer prayer the way you think he does. Or maybe he's not alive at all. And Elijah says, keep on. We'll just wait here. Can you see Elijah? Yeah, y'all keep on doing that. I'm just sitting here. Yeah. See what's going to happen here. Okay. It's, you know, listen, we've been at this for a while. Y'all been howling. Y'all getting on my nerves. Now, y'all, you're bothering my nerves. I'm getting upset. Haven't eaten. It's time to put this thing to rest. Go on over there. Have you a seat? Because obviously, your God ain't answering. And do me a favor. Build me a new altar. Put me an offering up there. And listen to what the Bible says. First Kings chapter 18. Listen to what Elijah does. The Bible says in verse 36 that it came about at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today, 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 let it be known that you are the God of Israel and I'm your servant and that I have done all these things. What? At your word, your command. In other words, Lord, I'm tired of waiting on them to prove to me that their God's got power. Do me a favor. Show them who the real God is. Look at verse 37. Answer me, Lord that the people might know that you are God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. I'm gonna tell you about that here in a second. So verse 38 says, then the fire of the Lord fell and it consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now you may not recognize it, but that's a mighty hot, terrible fire to lick up water. I got burning up the stone. I can even work with burning up the dust, certainly burning up the wood, but water, it licks up. And you gotta understand that word lick in the Hebrew. It's not that it just burnt it out. It's God brought the water down and the water picked up the fire. Well, the fire picked up the water, should I say, picked up the water and moved it away in evaporation to demonstrate how powerful God truly is. And the text says in verse 39, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. In other words, all that talking and praying that Elijah did, it had to come to fruition. And guess what it did? It did exactly that when Elijah took him up to the mountain. What's the lesson for us? If you're going to talk it and you're going to walk it, you better hold on to it because you got to prove it. Now, not you per se, but you're going to be the instrument that God's going to use to show how his word indeed comes to pass. If Isaiah is right that when God's word goes out, it does not return void, that meant that God can't make a promise and don't keep it. That's what that means. God doesn't write bad checks. God doesn't make promises that he end up being able to have to renege on. In other words, Elijah is trying to tell us 
God, when he calls you to an assignment, he is going to have you walk through some very strange places because when you prayed and you don't remember it, Lord, make me into what you'd have me to be, God says, great, now I'm going to stretch you and stretch you until you are made into who I desire for you to be. And some of you are in that space right now. You're living through that droughtful moment where there's no rain and fears in your life. It appears that nothing has actually happened and no fruitfulness is actually coming about when actually what God is doing is breaking up the fallow ground and getting your soil ready for the rain to fall. And it's going to fall. But you need to be prepared when the rain falls. Because when we read the story further, we come back to it next week, guess what happens? Elijah tells Ahab, once he defeats all the prophets, listen for the thunder. You're going to hear the rain in the sky. Because God is going to do his promise. Back in verse 1, I'm going to send the rain. Grandmama, granddaddy right. He may not come when you want him. but he's always on time. Elijah needed God in this critical moment because remember, Elijah's question is, do I have it like that with God? Do I got that kind of power? And God is affirming to him, yes, you do. Obadiah needed it as well because Obadiah has to realize, I was not born to fit in I was born to stand out. And Ahab is going to recognize, now he knows who the real God is because he come to realize, are the words of Elijah true? Does he have that kind of power where if he says it, it comes to pass? And each question is the affirmative because God makes clear what has to be made clear. You aren't being moved you're not being reassigned. You're not being relocated. You're not getting the promotion that you want because maybe God is stretching you out of your complacency and your comfortability to put you in a space of complex so that he can stretch your mind and can cause you to exercise your faith. Here's my closing point. When Peter saw Jesus was out on the water, he had one question. Lord, if it's really you, bid me to come out where you are. And what does Jesus do? Permits Peter to walk in the supernatural. He doesn't swim out to Jesus. He walks on water. Now watch this. How do you walk on water? Because you and I know if we go to the Potomac right now and try to walk, what's going to happen? Sink. But he permits Peter to see the supernatural, not for Peter. How do I know that? Because remember, when Peter gets out there and the boisterous winds arise, what does he do? He sinks. Jesus is there to rescue him. But guess who all that was for? The brothers sitting back in the boat who wouldn't take a step out of the boat. They're sitting there looking at all this like I see them saying now. Can you believe that? Is that fool walking on water? He actually is walking on water. Look at him. I told you he's going to fall. See, he fell. I told you he's going to fall. 
What does Jesus do? Lift him back up. Put him back on top again, man. He back on top, which suggests that even when you take a risk and step out, yes, you might fall, but because you took a risk, the hand of God is always there to lift you back up and to put you back on surface if you are willing to take a risk. That's what faith is. It's the substance of that which is only hoped for. That's why your imagination is critical. Your imagination is important. Read Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You can see God employing imagination. He just looked out and decided to make stars. What was a star? Don't nobody know what a star was until God made it. What was a moon? What was a sun? What was the orbit? What was a planet? What was anything until God made it in his mind first, then spoke it. And there it was. Use your imagination. Because when you use your imagination, you can see beyond what you presently see. I said this a week before, and I don't think anybody caught it. Let me say it again. One reason why we don't experience miracles is because we don't see miracles. Let me slow it down and say it for you. One reason why we don't experience miracles is because we don't see miracles. Now, what's a miracle? It's defilement or the opposite of the natural. That's why it's called super. Natural. So it's the ultimate. Why don't I see the ultimate taking place? Because I don't see it. They didn't even have your head again. I don't see it. See? If I see it, you should always read this. One of the greatest stories to read is Walt Disney. Greatest story to read. Although he never saw it come to full fruition, he saw it. He saw it. He saw a place where people could bring their families and have a good time. Oh, if he could see Disneyland today. It would blow his mind. He couldn't believe probably how it actually grew into. But he saw it. He actually saw it. And there were our ancestors who saw church, who saw a space to worship, who saw freedom. They were our ancestors who saw, but never saw it in reality, but saw it in vision. That's King's words. My vision is that one day my children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. But I also got a vision that one day, I'll see little black boys and white girls and white girls and black playing together, Protestants, Catholics, Jews, and Gentiles, and they're all in one big circle, and they'll be able to lift their voice and say, free at last, free at last. But he saw it. You got to see it. I'm convinced the Berlin Wall came down because somebody saw one day, it's time for this joint to come down, and it came down. What do I get out of Elijah? Elijah said, you got to have vision. You got to have imagination. You got to be able to, and can you imagine Elijah when God told him, tell him it ain't going to rain for three years? What? I'm just a prophet. How am I going to tell this king it ain't going to rain? See it. And guess what? It doesn't rain. Now I want you to go back and tell him it's going to rain soon because I'm going to send the rain. Now I got to go back, but I got boldness now I can tell him. And I won at Mount Carmel. Some of us got Mount Carmel's. We've won many times. And that's why we're able to keep going because God keeps giving us victory 
after victory after victory after victory. This is where the mother, rather, the, mother uh, the rubber meets the road. You can't stay on the mountaintop forever. You got to come down to the valley where the real world is. And that's what I want to tell you today. When you leave here, get ready for the real world. Because you just got a word of revelation and you need to walk in it. Our Father, thank you for our time together and 